Welcome to Innovation Minutes Live, where we discuss all things disruption and innovation at the cross-section of technology and culture. Your co-hosts are Daniel Gonzalez and Anna Akbari, PhD. Welcome to another episode of Innovation Minutes Live. I am Dan Gonzalez, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anna Akbari, and today we have a special guest with us. Yes, we are thrilled to be joined by Nigel Andrade, who is the Managing Director of AT Kearney for Australia and New Zealand, and he's the global lead for their Proposition and Customer Experience Lab. So welcome, Nigel. Thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure, Dan, Anna. Um, Really thrilled to be here. And we're really excited about this topic, which is what's the trick to successful enterprise innovation? Because you're someone who is embedded on a global scale um, in this space every day. And so I'm really excited to hear your uh, insights with some specificity, but I want to start at kind of a bigger picture and just ask the question, you know, can big companies innovate? Is that even a possibility? Uh, I definitely think it's a it's a possibility, Anna. Um, yeah. Though it's a very good question because, quite frankly, there is a lot of what I would call innovation theater uh, that's okay. going on uh, in large corporates. Um, a lot of um, hackathons for hackathons' sake. Uh, a lot of pretty cartoons on the wall. Uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, agile scrums. Um, and what was really interesting is um, over the last two years, I've interviewed about um, 100 CEOs across industries and across um, markets, and only one in four of them um, actually said that they were seeing the commercial outcomes of all of this um, um, activity. So it's a very yeah. good question. I do believe it's possible, but it's unfortunately uh-huh. not the norm. First of all, that's fascinating uh, and, and not surprising, actually. I think that Dan and I are, are not surprised to hear that only 20% yeah. feel that they're making progress. Um, I guess one question I have is, despite that, are the other 80% still continuing to funnel resources into innovation or are they largely just giving up on it? I think um, they are honestly continuing to um, funnel investment and resources in, though I would say uh, if I were to take a temperature check, um, we've we've crossed the first peak uh, of uh, enthusiasm and there's Mm -hmm. a slight uh, skepticism and a regrouping that's happening. I do believe mm-hmm. there will be uh, another peak uh, coming, and 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 that will be, I think, the more material uh, opportunity for us to see a very different kind of innovation. So then, what do you think that looks like? And I would be curious of that twenty percent that do feel that they're making actual progress. What do you think they're doing differently? What differentiates? those companies? And and is it just perception? I mean, are they actually more innovative than the other ones? Yeah. Um, so we looked at that quite systematically, and we identified a couple of key things that they're doing differently, which we have since then started embedding in the work we do with uh, with our clients globally. So the first thing is innovation is a response to a commercial question. 
Um, so if you can't answer the question, why are we trying to innovate with a, um, with a value answer, um, then I think you're setting yourself up for failure. Now, this doesn't mean it's all about, you know, 1% more margin or direct bottom line impact. It could be very much in, in this whole spirit of the shared value uh, philosophy. How do we create value in the market and how do we share in the value? But it has to be mm -hmm. commercial. It has to be tangible. Um, and okay. I would even say, uh, you know, innovation for the sake of just improving, improving customer experience or NPS is not sufficient, right? That needs to be seen as a means to an end. So point number one is um, the uh, the twenty percent are really companies that start with a very clear um, value case uh, for innovation. The second is um, innovation is not um, you know just one thing. Um, mm -hmm. We talk about the Goldilocks principle. Can you break down what you're trying to do into Goldilocks-sized chunks? Um, mm. And for those of you in parts of the world that have the story of Goldilocks, it's about not, not being too big, not being too small, but just being um, you know being just right. Um, right. And how do we define um, you know maybe five or six what we call domains of innovation, each with their own. Uh, business sponsor, each with their own uh, value goal, um, so that we're not trying to, you know, play around with the next shiny toy, and at the same time, not trying to turn the entire company in one fell swoop. Um, uh -huh. I would say the third, the third thing, um, and there are four, so I'll cap at that. But the third thing is, um, I think there's been an unfortunate religious war that's been brewing between the design thinkers versus the advanced analytics professionals versus the consultants with their hypothesis-based problem-solving approach, mm -hmm. and then the agile at scale advocates. And it's almost like, uh, you know, four competing uh, battalions uh, trying to gain supremacy, while quite frankly, in Kani and in the proposition and customer experience labs that I lead, we strongly believe that each one has its strengths and weaknesses, and it's only a combination of those four disciplines that can really um, move the needle. Um, mm -hmm. And then finally, I would say, you know, we absolutely need to make sure that the, um, the business owners um, are the internal buyers of innovation right from the get-go. Um, you know, they should be agreeing that this is a problem worth solving. Uh, they should be part of the innovation sprints. Uh, and they should be buyers of the outcomes long before the outcomes are delivered, uh, which is very different from a separate skunk works, um, you know, okay. being given a, a, a kitty of money to go do, create, innovate, form partnerships, and then come back and say, uh, look, uh, mommy, look, daddy, look what I found. Um, and then the the parents, so to speak, uh, I know I'm being a bit humorously pejorative here. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, would would say that's very nice. Um, why don't you go and play some more? Um, mm -hmm. And that's what leads to innovation theater. Yeah. You know, you said something there, which is that um, you, you're not in effective innovation. You're not trying to turn the entire company in one false swoop. And I think that is where a lot of companies get tripped up. Is it? It's and that's sort of where that initial question of can big companies innovate stems from is that it is such a giant ship that you're trying to steer. I think a lot of companies don't know where to begin. Where do you find is the most effective place to begin 
implementing or nurturing innovation within a large organization? Yeah, very good question. So the um, the normal answers tend to go towards a functional response, right? Should it mm -hmm. be, um, you know, the technology team? Should it be the um, the customer department or the marketing department? I think those um, answers, you know, often prove to be inadequate. The okay. way we think about it is, um, you know, let's say you you've taken a company and you've identified uh, the five domains, and you say, okay, there's a domain around, uh, you know, needing to make uh, insurance more affordable, uh, and then you have another domain around uh, needing to uh, offer customers prevention um, of risks rather than just uh, you know managing risks once they happen, and so on and so forth. Um, what I've seen working really well is picking one of those domains and saying, okay, let us agree that this is the um, uh, the commercial objective that we're going to try and and push. Um, and let's agree who owns this in the company. And then let's uh, bring together a, um, uh, you know, you call it a squad, you call it a tribe, you call it a sprint mm -hmm. team, you call it a pod. Everybody has a different language for it. But essentially an empowered multifunctional team to, um, you know, get into some ethnographic insights, uh, get into design uh, get into breaking that design down into a minimum viable proposition and then get into sprints to uh, put some prototypes in front of customers. Now, this method is well understood, but mm -hmm. the way in which, um, you know, uh, I'm talking about it is choose a real life business problem, which everybody cares about with a clear business owner and turn the company around throughout the entire stack that is from strategy to the go-to-market channels, to the operating model, to the enablers, the IT platform, the performance management system, in that what we call blockbuster opportunity alone, right? Uh -huh. Prove that it can be done and then go on to the next blockbuster and the next blockbuster and therefore cover, you know, 60% of the company that genuinely needs to innovate uh, while not stressing about the 40% that are doing a perfectly good job and quite frankly need to keep the lights on. Um, but okay. it's not a functional response. Uh, it's very much an opportunity-based uh, approach. Uh, and the trick, of course, is to identify a Goldilocks opportunity, which is an art uh, as much as a science. And do you think that that, is, that opportunity, do you generally locate it exclusively in the output of innovative products? Or do you think that there needs to be equal attention to culture and intern, internal structure when it comes to innovation? And can, oh, no, you, can you be truly innovative um, if you have one without the other? Uh, the answer is no. Um, uh, yeah. In, in fact, I would say you can be truly innovative if you have uh, an innovative culture, even if you're not changing the products. Uh, you can't be innovative mm. if you have new products, but you're not changing the culture. Some companies would, would like you to think it's the opposite of what you just said. But I think Dan and I would both agree that it, we agree with your stance on that for sure. Yeah, Yeah. no, absolutely. Um, and, and given your work, I'm not surprised, you know, which I respect. <laughs> yeah, not uh, a surprising <laughs> stance, I realize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess what I was saying is, you know, uh, several companies um, in industrials, in financial services, especially institutional financial services, uh, in enterprise telco, they're all trying to move from product to solutions, right? And the shift from product to solutions 
is not about you know how do I create a new shelf of products. It's how do I change the way my salespeople have conversations? Uh, how do I change the way they're remunerated? How do I change the way um, you know delivery teams don't create complexity by creating you know tons of bespoke solutions, but actually create a modular architecture? So if you want to uh, you know move the products, you got to move the culture. But if you want to move the culture, moving the products is not sufficient. So one is a necessary mm-hmm. uh, uh, and not sufficient uh, condition. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and I'm sure you see this in some of the companies that you work with, where they're they're so focused on the bottom line. They're fo- so focused on their quarterly metrics that they want to be cutting edge with their output, and they have a really hard time making the space for and justifying the resources for internal innovation as well. And so how do you address that with some of the clients that you work with? Where's that balance between meeting your quarterly goals, but creating a sustainable environment that supports longer term innovation? So I think actually, um, the answer is not what you're going to expect. So the traditional (laughs) answer is... um, the traditional answer has been, you know, you need to think about it in terms of horizons, um, uh, which is which is mm-hmm. still very valid. Yeah. Um, but I think it's now becoming an increasingly false choice between mm-hmm. uh, what I would call near to midterm uh, commercial impact uh, and um, and and innovation. Uh, so positive commercial impact in the near to, near to medium term and, posi- and 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 being an innovative company. So. Um, if you look at what the best innovators are doing, um, firstly, they moved away from big builds, right? This is not about what can I, um, what can I, or, or rather, we we tell our clients the question you should be asking is not what, how long will this take? The question should be, what can I do in twelve weeks, and then the next twelve weeks, mm-hmm. right? Um, okay. The question should not be how much is this going to cost. Uh, the first question should be, what can I do to move the needle with the first $100,000, right? Um, so with the right mindset, with the right leadership, and with all the new uh, you know, technologies that are possible, the advent of cloud, the wonderful uh, ecosystem of partners that exist out there, um, that you know, if, you, if you can change your procurement processes, your funding processes, your business requirement processes, none of these are easy. But if you can change them, I've seen companies, um, you know, move the commercial needle through innovation uh, within the year. Uh, And in fact, that's what we almost exclusively work with our clients on. So uh, Uh there was a time when it was, you know, do you want your bottom line or do you want innovation? Choose. Uh, I think we've moved past that to a point where you can get both. But you need Uh to know how to um, how to structure the questions you're asking and how to demand a very different kind of, uh, of output uh, and not slip back into, well, you know, it's going to take a system replacement and that's another $100 million and we'll get back to you in three years. Um, you know, yeah. that's the kind of stuff that gave the first wave of innovation a bad name. Uh, and I think we, uh, the 20% I spoke of have moved beyond that. The 80% uh-huh. are still very much stuck in that, uh, in that paradigm. Right, where they're going through the motions, they're they're they think they're sort of checking the boxes because they've had this event or they had a seminar on design thinking, and now they think that kind of like through osmosis, the whole company is going to be innovative, and then they're very disappointed when that is what they get. Yeah. Um, I know you've yeah. said in the past 
that, uh, and I really like this, that you can only cost cut your way to innovation for so long. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of senior leadership intuitively knows, but doesn't necessarily want to admit to themselves. So, so how do you, how do you help to shift that mindset for them? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, the, the phrase I normally use, you can only cost cut your way to greatness. Um, so far, <laughs> right. Um, you know, take it here in Australia where, you know, we are very much dependent on dividends. Uh, we don't have a strong bond market. Uh, our equity market basically acts as a, as a yield engine for the public uh, and for institutional investors, which means there's an inordinate pressure on Australian businesses to deliver quarter-on-quarter dividends. Now, in that environment, uh, obviously, the um, game A that's being played out uh, has been cost-cutting. Right. Um, okay. You know, cut as many costs as you can, increase the margins, uh, especially, you know, since we're not a fast growing population and, uh, you know, it's not a growth story per se. Um, now, in that environment, I think the true winners who are going to emerge are the ones who can uh, redefine markets, uh, put out propositions that create new value that they can share in and thereby drive growth. Um you know, so innovators uh, are going to own the future, uh, not cost cutters. Now, the question is, how do you do that? Um, well, I think um, the way I would uh, advocate is, firstly, um, you know, have an integrated value story. Um, so understand what drives your market valuation, what drives your TSR, and what you'll realize is, um, you know, while the analysts put a high premium on cost cutting, uh, those with a good uh, growth story, uh, especially a growth story with proof points, uh, will get a bump in their price to earnings multiple. So if you take that yeah. holistic view, then what you what you would want to do is reinvest a portion of the cost savings um, into uh, into the top line. Now, I think okay. that's not happened as much as it should. Uh, but if I'm going to save $100, I would strongly advocate, you know, maybe banking 50 and reinvesting 50. Um, in some cases, it, it would be, depending on the urgency and the direness of the situation, may bank 80 and reinvest 20. Um, in other cases, you could do it the other way around. But the bottom line is, if nothing is going back into um, into driving innovation, um, you know, you're, you're writing a very short uh, story uh, not uh, a long novel. The one thing I will say is because of the less than successful track record of innovation, people are hesitant to invest that $20 in the 100. Uh, because if it goes into innovation theater, uh, that's unforgivable, um, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you're costing people jobs, uh, you're, you're letting friends and family go. Uh, it's a painful process. And in that okay. process, you then, you know, hire a bunch of people to come in to, uh, you know, do a little song and dance routine. It just feels, um, you know, wrong. And therefore, having a very commercial, business-oriented view of how I'm going to make that $20 really pay back, create more employment opportunities in the future, um, you know, give back to society in a shared value kind of way, um, that's what's the missing piece. It's not the mechanism. It's not the ability to invest, it's the conviction that that investment will ever return. And that's what I'm a strong advocate of. Done right, it will. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, there are, as you say, this innovation theater, it usually takes a, um, takes a form as a lot of different trendy innovation tools. So they want to be able to use terms like lean methodology, tribes, design seek design thinking, et cetera. So just to clarify for people, do you think there is still a place for those things within innovation, within an organization, or have those sort of modalities become outdated, or is it just that they, they, the way that they're being used? No, I, I believe in the first case. Um, they are very powerful tools. Um, yeah. And in the hands of uh, the right individuals, um, you know, they will be part of the answer, uh, right? Mm-hmm. The design thinking really helps us think out of the box. Advanced analytics can help us find ideas where we didn't think they are. Uh, hypothesis-based problem solving is critical to accelerate uh, time to impact. Uh, and the agile uh, sort of at scale models are essential, again, to accelerate and get things right eventually. So all of these are mm-hmm. extremely powerful methodologies. I embrace them fully. Um, what I don't believe in uh, and what I caution against is that any one of them is sufficient. And more mm-hmm. importantly, that you can just, um, you know, because you're wearing a black T-shirt and you have a beard, and I'm halfway there with a beard but not a black T-shirt, <laughs> um, you know, uh, you, can, uh, you can run a successful design thinking workshop. Um, right. It takes a very... Um, you know, it's apprentice profession. Uh, it's an apprentice mm-hmm. profession, just like all these others are. And and the only thing I would say is that, you know, there's no other way to test the effectiveness of these tools than to string them together well and to have them executed in a way that delivers commercial results. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's that which is the true touchstone. So I, I, I believe in these approaches. I just believe the hype may be um, a racing ahead um, there may be a bit too much, um, um, you know, self-declaration of expertise um, and um, and not enough scrutiny of, um, you know, what what has been really delivered in the past and 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 let's really work together, roll up our sleeves, and deliver something. To, and that, I think that's great advice, and I would love to kind of close out this topic by asking what advice you would give to senior leadership that is looking to make their organization more innovative? What what would be the sort of big takeaway, big singular piece of advice you would give them, as well as to uh, employees, people that maybe aren't in the C-suite, but really do want to find a way to be more innovative in the work that they do and bring that into the organization. What what advice would you offer those two groups? The first group, which is the senior leaders uh, hoping to drive innovation, I would encourage them to reflect on whether they can articulate the three to five big domain questions that they're trying to answer, uh, which have a clear value potential in the medium term. I would ask them to encourage their teams to come back to them with what can you do in 12 weeks and what can you do with $100,000 rather than uh, how long is this going to take and how long is this going to cost. And I would strongly advocate um, that they, if they're only seeing one of these four methodologies play out, 
uh, that they call time out and say, look, we are we are firing on one out of four cylinders and we need to bring the other three in because it's really the magic of the Ford working in concert that delivers results. Now, obviously, in my job, I can spend days giving advice on this topic, but those would be my my most uh, my most yeah. um, um, uh, pertinent uh, and immediate pieces of advice. Um, in the case of the employees, um, I think um, you know the idea uh, or the suggestion I have for them is um, is to try and mobilize uh, around these Goldilocks opportunities. What I mean is. All too often, um, people will put out a, a Yammer chat saying, you know, if anybody has a good idea, please share it. We're keen to innovate. Uh, and as a result, you get, you know, 10,000 ideas flowing in if you're lucky or 1,000 mm -hmm. ideas. And then the organization can't digest it. What I've seen good organizations do is they say, you know, these are the three really big problems we're trying to solve. If you have ideas on these three big problems, then come to us. So they've already defined the market, so to speak, and now they're looking for um, they're looking for suppliers in that market. So I would say, you know, if you think if you're working in finance and you think, you know, what I think I can improve this report, uh, and I'll get a pat on the back uh, by creating this, um, you know, routine. Um, uh, through Visual Basic, that's fantastic. That's great, but that's not going to be sufficient. That's almost, you know, good for yourself. On the other mm -hmm. hand, if you say, "Look, I'm noticing this. You're noticing this. So why don't the five of us come together and think about how, in the next twelve weeks, and with a hundred thousand dollars, we could make a significant dent uh, on this um, on this problem, and then approach the management with that Goldilocks idea." as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a thousand small ideas, I think you're going to find a much more positive reception uh, and you're yeah. going to find that you you have more personal satisfaction because you're making um, a real material uh, difference rather than, um, you know, what I would call self-entertainment. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I think I think that's great. I think also people should, and I perhaps you would agree with this, is that if you can't get senior leadership on board, uh, with uh, allowing for their employees to be progressive and innovative and take ris risks, then it becomes a perpetually frustrating um, endeavor on the part of employees. And, and perhaps they should also reconsider where they would like to work if that is the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, but you know the um, what I find the one piece of advice I have on that one is uh, is everybody in a company uh, in an institution has a personal reputation, and yeah. if you are known as somebody who doesn't just come up with the ideas but also uh, comes up with solutions and delivers, um, mm -hmm. people notice, right? And mm -hmm. and I've seen organizations which have very stringent processes etc but there'll be those five or ten people in the organizations which people trust and if they say well if uh, jane is saying that and we know jane delivers then let's make an exception right yeah. so the real uh -huh. question is how do you build that reputation in the organization and again it doesn't come about by having a, a several small little ideas and it doesn't come about by coming up with a solution that's going to cost 10 million dollars and take uh, uh, a year to deliver 
uh, it comes up with uh, moving the needle in Goldilocks steps. Yeah, I like that idea that that you can that it becomes your own personal reputation and brand, and you become your own sort of innovation project internally within an organization. I mean, clearly, if if you if you find yourself frustrated by other things at the organization, that that's different. But if you're otherwise happy there, I think that's I think that's great advice, and I bet a lot of people don't consider it that way. Um, but it's a very empowering way of thinking about it. Is your company innovative? I mean, actually innovative. A foosball table alone doesn't cut it. Not sure? Head over to hvck.co and take our innovation quiz. We'll send you a personal response and tell you where your company is killing it and where it's struggling. And if you're listening to this podcast, you might also like one of our online courses. Check out our courses on enterprise entrepreneurship, on how to win a hackathon, or on how to apply startup principles to the way you live and work, all at hvck.co. So we want to transition now into uh, a, a, our favorite segment that we do at the end of each of these episodes, which is what's intriguing us in the world of technology and innovation. And Nigel, you're our guest. So um, unless you want us to go first, I would invite you to share with us whatever Thing. It can be absolutely anything uh, is kind of piquing your interest or delighting you or, uh, you know, interesting you at the moment. Uh, why don't you guys, uh, why don't, I've been speaking quite a bit, so why don't you guys okay. go first and okay. we'll, uh, All right. learn the game, the rules of the game as well. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Okay, great. Um, Dan, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, something that I've been looking at is, um, is actually not new, but, but more new to me, and that's um, machine learning. And, you know, this is, it's often lumped together with, with AI and, and they're actually, they're, they're very different, but um, more specifically looking at large data sets across organizations and, and specifically as it relates to innovation, um, looking at how different organizations solve their problems in different ways and, and trying to detect some of the patterns that exist um, in terms of successful organizations and not so successful organizations. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting, you know, and, and I think it kind of ties back into this conversation, Nigel, with, with your recent experience and in, in all the CEO conversations you had and the data that came out of that. Um, I think as, as we move forward and, and move across this, um, I, I think you kind of put it in terms of a graph, right, where everybody kind of peaked and now we're in a little bit of a valley and, and coming out of that, it will be a lot of learnings. It'll be interesting to see how how things change and, and maybe how some of this new technology can be applied to, to show companies uh, a clearer path. Yeah. And possibly even maybe the, the value of it, you know, yeah, exactly. like maybe it'll help exactly. to define the value. I think that's yeah. great. Um, cool. Okay. So mine is that, and, and this is not going to be revelatory for uh, anyone that has not been paying attention to the news for the last several months, but I'm very interested in Apple's new iPhone screen time for iOS 12. Um, specifically because as we've talked about on this podcast before, and as I've written about, um, you know, I'm very passionate about understanding the ways in which we engage with technology and the effect that has on us psychologically, as well as the social impact and on, um, how and if work gets done. Uh, and so I am I'm really, really interested in seeing when this rolls out later this fall on, on a wider scale. Um, if these new, you know, do not disturb um, features and the new notification features and the metrics and uh, a lot of the stuff in it is targeted to kids, 
but I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in whether or not this will have an effect on adult behavior. And a writer for the New York Times actually this week did a piece and did a sort of experiment where he used screen time to try and change his own behavior. And then also he quote unquote borrowed a kid from uh, his editor <laughs> who was a 14 year old. Um, and, and what was fascinating is that the teenager took to it far more than the adult did. And the adult was using his phone uh, much, much more, was much more addicted to it, was much more um, resistant to these uh, kind of parameters that were put on. Whereas the teenager, interestingly, was like, oh yeah, I see what this is doing to me and was being very observant. And again, this is a sample of one. So like, who knows if this would have a wide scale um, effect in the same way. But I, but it was interesting because then the teenager was saying like, oh yeah, I think I would like another parameter on this. And then at the end, the teenager was like, can I, can I also get some screen time limitations for Netflix <laughs> because she was like, yeah, I can't stop watching that either. So <laughs> I, I, I don't know if that just speaks to the resilient mind of a teenager versus someone who's older. Um, but I, I think that it probably was indicative of the fact that adults are going to struggle a lot more with changing those behaviors. Um, I do think this will be fascinating. I don't know, if, Dan, if you, uh, if your kids have, uh, I doubt they have iPhones. I don't know. Maybe they do, but I'd be curious if you think something like this would work for them um, versus versus on you. Yeah, screen time's definitely a challenge, um, especially given that it's summer now. Um, yeah, you know, and, and we have a vacation kind of planned in the middle of their summer break, so it's it, we're we're trying to find that balance. But it's it's tough, and if if there's some kind of solution out there that that could potentially help and and not be too cumbersome, uh, I think we'll yeah. be welcome yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm excited to test it out on, on myself as well. So yeah. TBD this fall. <laughs> okay. Uh, on oh, to you, Nigel. So, you know, sort of um, just come back from uh, a collaboration set of exercises with, um, with a very interesting company in Europe. Um, unfortunately can't go into too much of the details because um uh, it's still uh, it's still client confidential, but essentially uh, what they are trying to do is, I think, reinvent the concept of a company. Mm -hmm. uh, and the way they're doing that is that they are are creating what uh, I've been calling the ultra modern mutual. So you know there was a time when customers owned the company and benefited, you know, uh, a company for customers by customers. Um, mm -hmm. Those were the classic mutuals. You know, many of them got demutualized, and now, with the uh, with the advent of uh, blockchain um, and uh, and and the technologies around it, uh, it's looking like we can create a new breed of company, uh, a company mm -hmm. where, uh, as you buy products, uh, you get uh, 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 tokens instead of points, and these tokens are linked to the underlying value of the company. Uh, as you refer um, um, friends and family, you get more tokens. Uh, as they buy more products, you get more tokens. So um, it's a much more um, gamified version of the, um, and I don't mean gamified in anything uh, in, in anything to disparage with. It's it's I think just creative. It's a gamified version of the mutual, um, which which can be far more responsive and rewarding. Um, and 
I, I really think this new model uh, could catch on like wildfire. It's definitely going to be yeah. something I'll be uh, advocating uh, across industries. Um, yeah. But the best proof of this is to is to get uh, one of these companies up and running, and that's what uh, we are, um, you know, looking to do um, in uh, in Europe. So, um, you know, watch out for these kind of uh, business models. Um, you know, the corporate uh, listed corporate has been around for a very long time, um, and uh, this could be a real um, a real dynamic contender for that model. That's great. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. very cool. What do you think the time frame is for something like that rolling out? Well, um, it's not easy. There's a lot of regulation yeah. involved. Um, yeah. Uh, but um, the the one we are collaborating with should go um, uh, should go live by. Well, it is live in alpha. It should go live uh, more um, uh, more widely by uh, by December of this year. So it's not Fantastic. too far away. Six months. Well. Hopefully, we'll have you on again before then, but if not, we'll definitely have you back on when you can speak uh, more candidly about it and give us uh, some details, because that sounds like a really um, a fascinating model that I'm sure a lot of different industries would be interested in. Um, so I want to thank you again for joining us, and we definitely hope that we'll be having many more conversations like this with you. Uh, and to you, our audience, we want to know what you thought about this conversation and what you think the trick to successful enterprise innovation is. So please find us online, send us your feedback, and we will see you again soon.